Welcome back to Taking Care of Business. Our next guest is a corporate innovator. He works with startup accelerators, children's entrepreneurship. Oh, I'm dying to find out more about that. And podcasting. Podcasting. Please welcome Steve Glaveski. Have I got that right, Steve? You have got that. <laughs> Just I stumbled across the line. <laughs> Very good, well done. Good to have you on the show. Now, you do lots of different things. Let's just start off with this corporate innovation that you do. What sort of mm-hmm. work does that entail? Yeah, so that entails the work that I do with um, Collective Campus. And basically, we essentially help large Fortune 500 organizations uh, update their uh, values, their systems, their processes in order to support the mindset and the behaviors that uh, are key to entrepreneurship. So moving quickly, taking risks, um, which often doesn't come easy for big listed companies who have a lot to protect. Um, and it also helps to upskill their workforce on things like uh, design thinking, lean startup, agile methodologies, as well as partner them with startups. So basically operate across capability building, culture change and collaboration with startups. Yeah, well, the Collective Campus was recognised in 2018 as one of Australia's fastest growing new companies by the Australian Financial Review and Corporate Innovation Startup Accelerator, uh, which you've got a base in Australia and Singapore, Mm -hmm. uh, that you've been home to over 100 startups and you've raised more than 25 million US and you've worked with Village Roadshow and Microsoft. They're pretty impressive credentials, Steve. Uh, yeah, look, I think I like to say that it's all cumulative, right? So the one yeah. something those credentials build up. Yeah, I, I, I love that attitude and I find that consistent with a lot in the startup world. It's been, oh, yeah, yeah, but, you know, what's next, what's next? And, mm. and you just sort of have that uh, continue. Were you born like that? Like, how did you get into this? Uh, I think I always had a entrepreneurial itch or at least a creative itch, if you will. I mean, I can think back to being eight years old and my dad not buying me the magazines I wanted to, to, to buy, like basketball magazines. So I'd just go off and draw my own magazines, full, full, uh, complete with little pull-out posters, if you will. Um, so I guess there was a part of me that just never took no for an answer. And when he came across a problem, would always try and come up with a solution of some kind. Um, so I guess I've uh, taken that uh, into adulthood, if you will. Yeah, and uh, obviously uh, you do like a little bit of variety in what you do Mm -hmm. because you also host an iTunes chart-topping podcast Mm -hmm. uh, that gets more than 100,000 listeners a month and it's called Future Squared and you've won a couple of podcasting awards. How did you start that? Yeah, so Squared was just going to be a bit of a marketing uh, channel for us but it became so much more. Uh, We published that onto Apple Podcasts. And before we knew it, we were on New and Noteworthy, and that got us into the Apple Podcast chart. So I quickly took a screenshot of that um, and then used that to help us secure big names. Um, so some of my guests have included the likes of Kevin Kelly, who founded uh, Wired Magazine, uh, Robert Green, uh, who wrote The 48 Laws of Power, and, um, say, uh, Gretchen Rubin, who wrote The Four Tendencies, and even Adam Grant, um, who wrote the book Original. So I've had numerous guests, but... It still is a marketing channel for us, but apart from that, it's access to amazing thinkers. It's relationship development. It's also personal brand building, and it's an opportunity for me to learn a hell of a lot about such a broad range of topics from everything, everything from neuroscience to entrepreneurship to technology, economics, politics, psychology, philosophy, you name it. And I find that when you read or learn across disparate areas, it just helps you connect a lot of dots 
um, and makes you informs your decision making and your problem solving in a way that knowing a lot about a very narrow uh, field of subjects um, just wouldn't do. Yeah, it's certainly good if you're a, a consultant or certainly or at the very least makes you an interesting dinner party guest. <laughs> uh, but but I, I hear what you're saying with this show. It's the same thing I get to speak to people like yourself and it's almost like you're going to university for the day. That brain p- picking is just wonderful. I, I, mm. It really is it, very stimulating. Yeah. And it's very immersive as well. Mm. Uh, I think when it's a conversation with someone, uh, I find the neural uh, connections tend to be a little bit more stronger than they are if I was to just read it uh, in a book. I agree totally, and I do like the, uh, the the format of radio or podcasting, that audio format, because it really is the theatre of the mind, so you can really tap into that that creativity side of mm. things. Now, you yeah. also founded a Lemon Stand, which I love the brand name of, a children's entrepreneurship program. Uh, how did that happen? Yeah, with the lemonade stand, basically what happened was um, we, uh, one of my employees um, more or less suggested, hey, during December and January, business is really quiet with the corporates. They all go off on holiday and forget about working uh, for a little while and don't really pick up until February. But school kids are on break. And as we know, the world is fast changing. Um, Kids need to learn to become more adaptable in order to succeed in the 21st century. And the stuff they're learning in school, while relevant, may not help them with that. So how about... We take what we're teaching large organizations and startups around rapid experimentation, building prototypes, marketing, and so on, and teach kids. And we've had kids as young as seven come through the Lemonade Stand program, which has been rolled out to over 1,000 kids. So it's basically a two-day workshop where kids run through the whole gamut of uh, tell me about a problem you want to solve, uh, coming up with solutions to that problem, building a business model around that, building some prototypes, websites, landing pages, and things of that persuasion to test their ideas and then pitching their idea at the end of the two days to an audience. Um, and that's been so successful that we now built that into an online version that we'll be launching in April um, to basically scale that through schools and also individuals who want to buy uh, or purchase a subscription to that. But that essentially, what, what we really want to see kids learn to become is more adaptable, uh, more critical thinkers, because for so long, things changed very slowly, but now we're finding that up to... of today's jobs are more likely than not to be automated in the next 10 to 15 years. So things that even white-collar jobs, uh, blue-collar jobs, service sector jobs are under threat. Um, And the only antidote to uncertainty is to get really good at adaptability, um, which is what uh, Stephen Hawking said. You know, um, adaptability is essentially intelligence. So adapting to uncertain circumstances, uh, I think entrepreneurship is an awesome vehicle to help kids with that and also just to become more resilient um, with their mindset because they're going to learn to hear no um, as part of entrepreneurship, but no is really a lesson learned. And with each no you hear, you can make those changes that are required to get to a yes. Oh, that's so inspiring, really inspiring. Uh, Have you noticed when you're dealing with the children any gender preferences? Are you finding that more of the the boys are more attracted to the tech side Mm. compared to females? What's your view there? Yeah. I mean, I know there's been studies performed on, on gender predispositions towards certain types of work, um, and I think uh, the studies around psychology suggest that um, girls prefer work whereby they're dealing more with people, whereas boys prefer work where they're dealing more with things. Um, however, that's not true across 
across the board, um, you're going to have a lot of overlap as well. But we do find that the girls in the, in the Lemonade Stand program come up with a lot more altruistic ideas, um, like solving big problems, whether it's to do with the environment, whether it's to do with homelessness, uh, whether it's to do with the welfare of animals. Um, and we find that the boys are often looking at things um, like creating uh, one, one such example I can think of is a Netflix for video games. Uh, video games are so expensive, how can we um, bring down the price? Well, why don't we just create a Netflix for video games where you pay $10 a month and we can play a lot of games? So um, I think you see some of those sensibilities come out as kids at a, at a very young age. Oh, that must be fascinating. <laughs> I'd, mm. I'd be totally obsessed with looking at that behaviour. But let's talk now about your new book. It's your first published book called Employee to Entrepreneur. What motivated you to write it? Yeah, I mean, if you look at the statistics today, over 50% of people are dissatisfied at work. And I myself spent about a decade in the corporate world uh, working for big brands like EY and Macquarie Bank and KPMG. And, and whilst I learned a lot there during my first few years, I got to a point where I had, I suppose, what you would call, quote-unquote, the trappings of success. But deep down, I felt miserably comfortable, uh, whereby I didn't really see the value of what I was doing come the end of the day. I was quite unfulfilled, and I felt that I could give a hell of a lot more. And there's so many people in the same position, but they don't know what to do, like what's step one, and they're scared of falling into a lot of the common pitfalls because 96% of startups fail, and usually it's because they um, jump to conclusions or they end up in with paralysis analysis. And a lot of that comes out of the behaviors we learn in the corporate world around research, analysis, planning, calling a meeting with a few people whenever a decision needs to get made just so we can spread that accountability. And, and ultimately... It, you can get away with that in a, in a big corporate environment because you've got a business model that makes money and you're essentially playing defense. You're protecting that. But as an entrepreneur, particularly during the early stages, there's so much uncertainty. You haven't got a business model that makes money yet and you're playing offense. So you need to move quickly. You need to take risks. You need to learn what works, what doesn't, and move forward. And you know, too much research analysis and planning can be the undoing of many, many an entrepreneur. So the book basically distills my seven years in the entrepreneurial space, be it all the work I've done working with you know, almost 100 startups, uh, over 50 large organizations, uh, read hundreds of books, you know, just had thousands of conversations, all that sort of stuff, distilled into 280 pages. And it basically covers everything from why you should get into entrepreneurship, whether entrepreneurship is right for you, um, how do you identify your purpose, what you should work on, uh, how do you experiment quickly, what are some awesome marketing and sales strategies you should use, as well as how to 10x your productivity, because it's easy to get busy being busy, but it's another thing to get busy being effective and still have time to spend with family and friends come the end of the day. Yeah, so what sort of mindset or character attributes are fundamental to success for an entrepreneur? Yeah, uh, I mean, there's a few, but the, the biggest the two biggest ones really, uh, and I'll quote Calvin Cormier as president, he said that uh, talent's Education and genius aren't enough. The world is full of educated derelicts, is what he said. Um, hmm. Persistence alone trumps everything. Um, so persisting in the face of setbacks after, well, setback after setback after setback and having a really positive relationship with adversity, I think that's going to get you further than anything else will. Um, and that's why I think schools place a lot of emphasis on the technical ability and perhaps not enough on the emotional intelligence that really underpins success across a number of different fields, not just entrepreneurship. Um, so being comfortable with your ego being challenged, I think, is a big thing, which is why I like to put myself in the firing line sometimes in terms of my own ego being challenged. Um, just the other night, I got up on stage at a 
open mic stand-up comedy um, event in front of like 20 or 30 people, which is a small audience. And if I was to do a keynote on entrepreneurship, that would be nothing. But they're expecting me to make them laugh. And that is a whole different ordeal. And it can be quite uh, <laughs> confronting. So I think if you've got a history of putting yourself in the firing line of having your ego challenged um, and you're comfortable with that, um, you're probably... You've got some of the prerequisites, or one of the big re- prerequisites, rather, to having a shot at entrepreneurship being a potentially a rewarding career path for you. Did you get a laugh? I got one. Um, <laughs> I, however, having said that, about five of my jerks fell completely flat. <laughs> you, you actually need plants in the audience to laugh, and then everyone will follow. Uh, now, <laughs> you, you mentioned earlier about planning a lot of entrepreneurs spend too much time planning so they get that paralysis by analysis factor. Mm -hmm. But how much planning should be done in your view? Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's a difficult question to answer without having the context of what are we actually planning for, what are the variables we're looking at. Um, What's what's the bare minimum? So if if, if someone's wanting to start a business, they're wanting to become mm -hmm. an entrepreneur, they've either got a new business idea or they're involved in a startup or some idea, business idea, what's the bare minimum they should do from a planning The bare minimum they should do is basically identify uh, the problem, the solution and the customer segment. Um, And, you know, they can spend time looking at Gartner and Forrester research reports or they can just find out what the assumptions underpinning this problem, this solution, and these customer segments are, and go out and test them as quickly as they can. So a really simple example of that would be, um, say, hypothetically, it's 2008, and I've come up with the idea for Uber. Rather than building the platform, building a 100-page business plan, onboarding hundreds of drivers, what I'll do is test the biggest assumption, which is that people will actually trust a stranger enough to get into a vehicle with them. How could I test that? Well, I could go out on a Saturday night to a busy taxi queue where people are waiting for a, for a cab and just ask people whether or not they'd be willing to spend or to pay $20 to get a, a ride home with a stranger, providing that we showed them proof that this person wasn't a criminal or something to that effect. Yeah. Would people say yes or no? And that's the fastest, quickest, cheapest way you can start to test those key assumptions that underpin your business model because you're going to have a lot of assumptions that underpin your idea, but there's going to be maybe two or three make or break ones. And if they turn out to be false, then you can get everything else right, but the business more likely than not is not going to succeed. Steve, when you are out at a bar or a barbecue or something and someone asks you, what do you do? How do you describe yourself? Uh, it's, a, it's a good question. And it's, it's a difficult one to answer, particularly when I do podcasting and book writing and working with corporates and kids and all this sort of stuff. And I used to say I am a corporate innovation consultant, but I, I like to read people's body language, and that didn't get people excited. So nowadays I open with I'm an author, <laughs> and, and and that gets a conversation going. And then as a byproduct of that conversation going, like, well, how did you get into that? And then I can start talking about the other work that I do. But if I open with I'm a consultant, um, that pretty much kills the conversation. <laughs> <laughs> I, I agree. I was, I was thinking you don't call yourself a serial entrepreneur. Uh, definitely not. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds like a serial killer. I always laugh at that one. Uh, Steve Gillespie. I've got to get your surname right. I'm sorry. Glaveski. That's right, is that? Glaveski. Yes. Steve Glaveski, employee to entrepreneur. Uh, a great read, How to Earn Your Freedom and do work that matters. Uh, I assume you can buy that book anywhere books are sold? Oh, yeah. I mean, you can buy it at all the big uh, bookstores like Dimmicks. You can find it online at Amazon, Booktopia, you name it. It's there. Just search for 
for it, Entrepreneur and Google, and it'll, it'll pop up. It'll be the first thing. Great. And I've just a quick last question. Your website, Employed Entrepreneur, it's dot, is it I? I, 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 oh, I, I haven't seen that before. What's that stand yeah. for? Uh, input, output. Oh, okay. I wasn't oh, sure if it was 10 or <laughs> or what. I actually quite like the thought if it was 10. So people are now moving away from the dot-com into other dot-something yeah, else. People are moving away. I think, I mean, a lot of that is because it's a bit of a land grab and most of the dot-coms are already taken. And mm. if you want to secure a dot-com, you probably have to pay upwards of $5,000 for a, you know, a common word, uh, if not more. Um, whereas the .ios, the .ccs, uh, the .tvs even are starting to um, make a bit of a run and, and they're just a lot cheaper um, to get started with. Yeah, well, it's, it's a way for you to walk the talk. I like it. Steve Glaveski, thank you so much for your valuable time. Thank you so much, Jackie. It's been a pleasure. I loved it. Uh, you're listening to Taking Care of Business as we be- pick the best brains in the business world. We will be right back after this short break. Welcome back to Taking Care of Business. Our next guest is a digital thought leader, is Head of Digital and Performance Marketing at Selmat. I'd like to welcome Karen Lewis. Karen Lewis, hello. Hi, Jackie. How are you? Really good, thank you. Great to have you on the show. Now, Selmat do some really interesting research, and I'm always interested to see the data and the insights that come out from this research. And your latest findings talks about home voice. So I've just thought, let's start with what's the definition of in-home voice assistant devices or home voice as it's called? Sure. So um, in-home voice assistant, um, the research has shown that that is definitely on an increase. Um, We're seeing a lot of consumers adopting it as a technology. So what it is basically is your Google Home device, which can sit in your home, you can ask it questions, it will deliver you information either through search engines, you can even ask it the weather or when a movie is showing or whatever, it's really designed to make life more convenient for consumers. Okay, so everyone knows uh, Google Home and they oh, they say, hey Alexa, is, is that what one of the names for it? I think Alexa, is that right? Yes. Yeah. So Alexa is the Amazon product. Google obviously have Google Home and there's also Siri from Apple as of well. Of course, yes. Well, that's good. So those listening, that probably makes a bit more sense now. And yes, it, they've really taken off. Why do you think they've been uh, so popular? Look, I think the, the research has shown a definite uptake and we've noticed that there's been some, um, some telcos who've gotten um, on board with offering in-home devices as part of packages. But consumers are definitely seeing the advantage of it being more convenient, being a really good way to research for purchasing, for things like groceries, electronics, um, holidays and travel. So it's really, it's really set in that utility of convenience. Okay, all right. So the consumers are loving it. They're, they're finding out about the traffic and the weather and they're doing some research, which they might, may have done on their PC or their laptop in the past. So if consumers are jumping on board, then businesses and particularly marketers need to be aware of this trend. So what can marketers do to ensure that their marketing strategy includes voice? I think marketers need to ensure that their multi-channel strategies include voice going forward. Given that shoppers are looking to voice to research brands, products and services, um, voice is going 
on there called Lasso List, which allows you to develop shopping lists. And what it will do is it will surface the best deal for that product across a number of retailers on the Lasso platform. So it's really about that convenience and a change of interaction in consumer behaviour. I love the brand name Lasso because it uh, it makes it feel like you're sort of pulling things pulling things in as a, as a Lasso is. But it is it an online catalogue, Karen? What is it exactly? Yes, yeah, so Lasso is our so Stalmart you probably know as being um, a little bit famous for catalogue distribution into people's letterboxes. Lasso is very much an integration between the digital and the physical. So what we have looked to do is get those retailers on board with aggregating their catalogue content through a one-stop shop through websites, um, and we use the catchphrase "I'll Lasso it." So you want to Lasso the best deal, um, and what it does is you can actually search for the best deals for all the retailers that are on Lasso through our web platform. So it just makes it another channel and really convenient for busy people on the go. Okay, so is it like uh, Kogan or one of those discount sites? Yes, a little bit. It's um, it's more in the space of the, the actual physical catalogues that go out. So it's a digital aggregation of those catalogues. Right. But yes, it's certainly a place to find really good deals and discounts. Now, when I was uh, preparing for today and reading about Lasso, I thought, how did that come about? And I was absolutely uh, impressed, I suppose, that you, uh, you found this idea through a hackathon. Can you tell us a bit about your hackathon? Sure. So um, we actually went out to consumers and basically asked them, you know, what, what would you like to see in this space? What is going to make things more convenient? for you and what we did was we collaborated on a number of ideas and basically the use case that we came up with Lasso and Lasso List was um, if you're a busy mum and you're there and you're making dinner for the family and you you know you're chopping your onions for your spaghetti bolognese or whatever it is um, and you're busy and you need to multitask the Lasso List application can then you can add things to the shopping list and it will also interrogate the Lasso data to find you the best um, the best deal on, say, that was my last onion, add an onion to my shopping list, and really, really baking in that convenience for busy people through the Lasso platform. Right. So the hackathon, do you do that annually? Yes, we do. So this was, this was a, the Lasso list was a staff idea, staff initiative through the hackathon. Uh, we run one every year, and we definitely try to, we're very committed on how we can improve user experience, how we can actually communicate with consumers. So we have this initiative once a year, and then basically we spend the next few months planning what that thing that we've come up with, what the solution should look like, and we allocate resources to building it. It's a great example of a company like Selmat really promoting the entrepreneur, so encouraging staff to be part of problem solving, I suppose, but also getting creative and using their entrepreneurial skills uh, collectively, I suppose, uh, to come up with ideas. I think that that's wonderful. Uh, Karen, I also noticed that uh, you do a lot of public speaking at Women in Digital and Women in Tech and various digital meetups. What's the most common thing you have to talk about? Um, so what I've noticed across the industry is there's probably a 
a lack of, of female leaders in the technology space or certainly um, females being outspoken about the industry. So one thing that I personally try and encourage is um, trying to get that, that female thought leadership in this space so it's not seen as a male-dominated uh, discipline and really getting women to share their ideas, to look at mentorship, to look at ways that they can navigate that industry sector and become really successful. So you're obviously trying to encourage more women into the tech space. Uh, you mentioned mentoring. What are some other ideas that we can do to encourage more females to consider tech as a, as a career option? So one of the things that I recommend is looking at encouraging more girls, um, kind of high school age, to get involved in things like coding. Um, to get involved in building things through a digital platform and really kind of roll their sleeves up and, and get some experience and some exposure to projects that involve the digital element or technology element and for them to just not be afraid to put their hand up, really, and to get involved. What do you think are some of the barriers currently uh, that are holding girls, females back from considering tech as a serious professional career? From my experience, especially in Australia, the, 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 techno, the technology sector seems to be quite male-dominated. It seems a little bit um, of more sway towards uh, a, a male sought-after career path. Um, I think that that's something that we can, we can break down and that we can start busting those myths. Um, but definitely science um, for the STEM topics. A very, a very underrepresentative of, of female knowledge. Mm. I'm really trying to encourage girls to get more involved in that space, to understand what their skill set is. They kind of think technology and digital is a bit of a, a boys' club, um, but it's actually all just about problem solving. And some of, a lot of women that I know are by far better at problem solving than most men that I know. So it really lends itself to personal attributes as well as um, technical attributes. Yeah, well, I, uh, you mentioned in Australia, and uh, I can tell by your accent that you're not a native. So how, how does Australia compare globally? Are we that far behind the rest of the world with women taking up tech roles? It's definitely catching up. Um, I would say um, Australia is a little bit of an outlier because of your density of population kind of sets you mm. a little bit uh, at a disadvantage to other countries, obviously the US being much more densely populated, there's a lot more programs in place at a university level and a high school level to get uh, more girls involved, like the Grace Hopper Initiative, um, to get girls more involved in, in university projects around tech and digital. Um, it's, it's the same in the UK, but it's definitely on the rise and it's definitely, um, we're seeing companies such as Microsoft and, um, and big organisations really recognising female talent and obviously Salma, I'm very proud to work with Salma. Um, we're seeing there's a lot of encouragement with we're trying to get more women involved in technical roles as well. Yeah, because certainly the females have uh, embraced social media, which is, I suppose, part tech, but it's only a very small part of it, I suppose, isn't it? Uh, yeah, so it's, it's definitely uh, a rising area and it's definitely something that can kind of be a little bit of an introduction into the technology space. So I don't, I don't uh, discourage anybody from getting involved in social media, but I think that... You know, if you are a, a, a female who's looking to go down the career path of technology and innovation, 
and digital um, to really start some advice and some career advice on how best to, to make a go of it in that space. Great. Well, if anyone's listening and wants to reach out to you, Karen, uh, what's the best way to get in touch with you? Uh, via LinkedIn, I'm assuming? Yeah, by all means. Look me up on LinkedIn. I'm more than happy to have a coffee with anybody, have a chat with them, um, steer them in the right direction. More than happy to help. Great. I love it. And uh, congratulations again on behalf of Cellmat and your new product, Lasso. I'm very interested to see how that goes. I'm sure it will be a great success. Thank you very much for your valuable time today, Karen Lewis. Not a problem, Jackie. It was an absolute pleasure. You're listening to Taking Care of Business. We'll be right back after this. Welcome back to Taking Care of Business. Our next guest works with businesses to use social media for business gain without the BS. I like that bit. I'd I'd love to welcome our next guest, Nicola Morass. How are you, Nicola? I'm excellent. How are you, Jackie? Good. I like that. That that certainly got my attention because (laughs) I think social media is one of those, uh, it's sort of like the big buzzword at the moment. Everyone's talking Mm -hmm. about it. And there's lots of sharks out there, lots of people you know, promising the world and not delivering. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so this online world with no BS and people are really struggling, partic- particularly anyone sort of north of 45 in my experience. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they're usually the business owners and so they're being led up the garden path a lot. And yeah. I thought I need to talk to you about this. Is that sort of where that BS, <laughs> no BS came from? It really is. You know, there are so many people, and you're right, 45 and over and and some below that as well, actually. It's just there's so much information out there, a lot of misinformation out there, and it's not, you know, hands up of how many of us have got a whole bunch of time, particularly as business owners, Mm -hmm. to spend trying to work out what the heck works, what doesn't, and... I think the bigger question is, well, why do I need to do it and how is this actually going to help grow the business, which, you know, leads to return on investment for time invested and, and all of that kind of stuff. So that's really why I wrote this is because there is just so much noise out there around what you need to do, what platforms you need to be on and everything else in between. So Yeah, now we should talk about what you've written is a book called Visible. Uh, and how did the name Visible come about? It's one of those things. It wasn't the original name. I can't even remember what I thought the name might be, actually. But it was just throughout the process of, of writing what I was writing, it, it was sort of like, well, you know, this is really helping people go from business owners go from feeling really invisible online to confused and overwhelmed. So, well, like, what's the consequence of doing this? I was like, well, you're visible. So, sort of like originally going to be invisible to visible, but that's really hard to say. <laughs> so, I just kind of decided to drop the first bit and run with visible. That the main reason for staying with that name is because it, it's the culmination of you being consistent, putting yourself out there, doing it in a way that really works for you. Visible is almost the, the byproduct of you doing all of that. Right. So with social media, uh, mm. I noticed here that you talk about um, that you help 
clients and people around the world with the social media and marketing strategies uh, to help these clients become professionally famous and I, I did like that in I'm doing air quotation marks as I'm doing that professionally famous right. online mm-hmm. what are some of the benefits like why would someone want to be professionally famous what's the what's the benefit of that great question so to me if we think about why we'd want to use social media as business owners it's in order to grow our businesses. The ultimate aim for a business owner is to make money as well as, you know, by doing the work that you do in whichever way, shape or form you do that. So the professionally famous comes in and and is beneficial because you become sought after in your industry. You can become seen as an expert, provided you've got the, the evidence online there to back that up, obviously. You've got the ability to be able to use your positioning as a way of being able to cut through the noise and really be able to stand out. So what our audiences, no matter what business that you're looking that you're in, what our audiences are looking for is someone to trust. They're looking for people who are telling them the truth, who are there to help them and who they can follow without being sold to every moment of every time of every day when they come across you. So, is, is there a formula that you use? I've read in the past and, it, and it's always different. Everyone's got their own different formula where yes. you put, you know, it's a 752 rule or mm-hmm. something like that. Have you got some formula that you use? I, I suggest that we, I call it value stacking. So something that I talk about in the book and I talk about with every client of mine actually is that you want to put out a good five pieces of content, value-based content, without making an offer. So we're not talking about how to download my book or come to this workshop or sign up for my coaching package or buy my widget thing. We want to give people a good five pieces of value-based content before anything and then say, well, like, this is how you can get some help from me. And then we keep repeating that process. So is it, is it 5-1? Is it 5-1? So five sort of value yeah. add, then one buy this? Call the action, yep. Yeah, okay. And then what about your view on people getting to know the person behind the profile? <laughs> I am, but for most companies, most businesses, I recommend that. Now, If you're in a larger organisation, that might be a little bit different. You would empower someone in your team, champion someone in your team to be the face of social media, ideally, or a few people to be the face of social media. Talking about small business and entrepreneurs, startups, anything like that, I advocate for you really showcasing you. Humans buy from humans, right? Mm -hmm. So I think there's a really big problem out there where many people are hiding behind the facade of pretty pictures and and not actually sharing themselves, not sharing their stories. And we're all looking for connection and we're all looking for people to trust because there is a lot of people out there, like what you were saying before, there's a lot of people out there that are just putting their stuff all over the place. So they're looking for people that they can really get to know and really get to trust. And that, 
by putting yourself out there, by really helping people get to see you in different facets, really helps you to shortcut that trust building process. Yeah. Now I don't I don't want me to offend you, but no. I'm always the I, I I'm not sure I don't think there's that you can use the word expert in social media only because mm-hmm. it changes so quickly and so often that mm. I'm thinking well how do you keep up to date with all these changes so it's hard to be an expert when things are moving so quickly is it moving as quickly as it's perceived to be? That is an excellent question. And I, okay, so yeah, things change all the time, right? Things change all the time. Algorithms change and and things like that change all the time. The thing that doesn't change is relationship building and emotional direct response marketing. So when we're looking at the methodology that I advocate for, which is showcasing you, sharing you, value stacking, knowing your audience really, really well and solving problems, for them through the content, the value-rich content that you're putting out, that doesn't stop working if an algorithm changes. It doesn't stop working if the internal workings of a platform change. So, yeah, different things change all the time in social media. But if we look at the fundamentals of human behaviour, of how people build trust and how people build relationships, that does not change. And that's essentially what we're applying into social media using these strategies. That's a great answer. Now, just quickly for those that are a little bit unfamiliar with social media and I get asked mm-hmm. a lot of questions, people get confused. So let's, let's, uh, let's create an avatar. Let's create someone mm-hmm. that's, an, that's an entrepreneur mm-hmm. uh, and they're wanting to, they've, they've got a service or product that they're selling, but they're mm-hmm. selling themselves as well as mm-hmm. the face of their business. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and they go, well, where do I start? Do I do, and of course they've got to start where their audience is, but then you go, mm-hmm. well, they're confused Facebook versus Instagram versus Twitter. So the three, mm-hmm. let's use those three platforms. Link, mm-hmm. LinkedIn, I think, is pretty self-explanatory. But I think Facebook, Instagram and Twitter, people get a bit confused about the three platforms and what mm-hmm. they should be using them for. Can you yeah. just give a very quick, simple explanation of the difference between those three platforms? Certainly. So Instagram is very image-driven. So if you are, for example, you were talking about an avatar of, of an entrepreneur, so use a graphic designer, for example, you could go and put out some photos and some imagery of your work or some things that inspire you. So Instagram is primarily about images with a little bit of text. LinkedIn is purely is mainly business connections. Twitter is very short, sharp bursts of text. You can still put images in there as well, but it's really, really super fast-paced. Excellent for journalists and authors and, and people like that. Facebook has got a, it's a bit of a blend with the, with Instagram, Twitter and, and well, Facebook. So you can use images, but you can also just do text posts as well. So Facebook is kind of like the... The, the best hybrid, if you like, for the different ways of being able to share information. Instagram, and it actually has a, has a user base of 2.2 billion active users, so it's also got the biggest audience base. People spend, on average, 40 minutes a day on Facebook. 
you've got a really great chance of being able to capture their information or capture their attention, rather. In Instagram, with the images and, and things like that flowing through, that's really great. I think there was... Uh, I haven't got the stats in front of me. But it's a, it's a lot more image-driven. It's a lot harder to capture their attention on Instagram because it's so fast-moving. Mm. And on Twitter, I would be... I wouldn't start there, to be honest. If you're time poor, go with Facebook, go with Instagram. I would probably lean towards Instagram over Twitter and generally over LinkedIn as well for an entrepreneur and then use your website versus trying to make Twitter work for you. Yeah, so that's, I'm glad you mentioned the website because uh, mm. lots of research say that websites like three or four on the list when people are looking for you, they'll go to mm-hmm. the, to your social media platforms first where it used to be the default, used to be straight to your website. Mm. Uh, so, look, I think there's still value in putting into your website, but I think it's time. Mm-hmm. Some, some of the effort that you put into your website in the past, that time and effort, resources and money can be put into your social media as part of your digital presence. Mm-hmm. Would, would that be considered? consistent with what you'd recommend? Yeah, it, it does. It is, yes. I would certainly recommend your website. That That is, it's, I, I promote and advocate for a three-pillar strategy to start with, particularly if you're starting out. And there's always Facebook, your website, and then depending on where your audience is hanging out, then that you choose your third platform being Instagram or LinkedIn or Twitter. So... Your website just gives someone a place to go and do some more research on you without all the noise of a news feed to try and scroll through. So I think it's it's still important. It's not the first priority necessarily like what it used to be say, 10 years ago. Yeah, but it's still part of that, uh, part of your key toolkit, I would absolutely. say. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, Nick, uh, Nicola, congratulations. Is this your first book? Uh, it's my first book about marketing, yes. Excellent. Well, uh, congratulations. It's always tricky uh, writing books and uh, often that's the bit that people don't discuss a lot about. They think, oh, I'll just write a book. It's easy. It's not. Uh, So well done on doing that. It's called Visible. It's available now where everywhere you can buy books, I'm assuming. Yes. Great. And uh, and have you been getting some uh, really good feedback on it? Really great feedback. There's really, really great feedback in terms of it's not just the theoretical book. There's worksheets, there's things to do, there's activities in there so that you're also implementing the knowledge. And we've had people coming back saying that they are having great results from following the strategies that are that are outlined in there. So I'm just it's it's very humbling actually. Right. <laughs> so really exciting. Well it is very exciting. So embrace the moment. Uh, it's Thank it's an you. exciting time, Nicola. And if people want to find out more about you, where's the best place they should start? <laughs> Facebook. Facebook, there we are, of course. Facebook, Excellent. Excellent. Nicola Morais, thank you very much for your valuable time today and I look forward to our next encounter and I'll go back and revisit my social media strategy now. Thank you. <laughs> thank you. You're listening to Taking Care of Business right here on Adore PFM. That's the end of the show. Can't believe it goes so fast. We hope you've enjoyed eavesdropping on our conversation today. Picked up some tips, learned something new, or at the very least feel inspired. If you just joined us, you missed a lot, but you can grab this show on the podcast on the RWPFM website, RWPFM. 
www.sbs.com.au or follow us on social media. Thank you to all of our worldly guests today and we look forward to your company next Friday at 11am. In the meantime, keep taking care of your business.